It is good to be with you today. In um, our media-saturated world, our English language has been evolving and revolving and all kinds of evolving with greater frequency uh, than ever before, perhaps, in history. And every fall, dictionary.com adds to their dictionary new words that have been accepted into common usage in recent times across our country. Uh, words like ghosting or ghost kitchen, which may sound like they're related, but they're not. And all kinds of other words get added in every year. Even the uh, game people added 300 words to the official Scrabble Dictionary recently. And this morning, I'm not here to teach you the latest trends on social media, but I'm here to teach you the new word that I want to introduce to your vocabulary. It's called Kogsalov. Have you heard of it? No, you haven't because I just made it up. But this morning, this is the word that is going to guide our walk in Scripture. Kogsaloth. Would you say that with me? Kogsaloth. Very good. And we're going to discover this word in Exodus. If you want to look along in your Bible, we're going to be in chapters 33 and 34 with a few selected verses from those two chapters in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 33, we have the point of the narrative in the Exodus story where Moses has been on Mount Sinai receiving the law from the Lord, and he's gone so long that the people start to question whether he's coming back and they ask Aaron to fashion an idol for them to worship. And you probably are familiar with where the story goes from there. Moses comes down off the mountain, sees the turmoil going on in the camp and what is happening. And he destroys, he breaks, he shatters the tablets holding the Ten Commandments. And God tells Moses as they have a back and forth throughout the next couple of chapters, God says, uh, I'm going to let the people go on to the promised land without me. I'm not going to go with them because if I, if I have to put up with these people, I'm likely to lose it. Have you ever felt that way about somebody? You probably have somebody in your life that you felt like that at some point. Well, God at this point is feeling that way about the people of Israel. If I, if I go with them, I'm just likely to destroy them having to put up with their constant rebellion, whining, complaining, etc. And Moses has to argue with God about the situation. And Moses says, Lord, if you won't go up with us, then just kill us here in the desert right now. Because if you don't go with us, we're never going to make it on our own. 
And God relents and says, okay, I will not only send you to the promised land, but I will go with you. And in verse 18 of chapter 33, we come to one of the most famous verses in Moses' life that you're probably very familiar with, where Moses says, now show me your glory. God, would you show me more of you than I've ever seen or known before. I want to know all that there is of you and about you. Would you show me your glory? And in verses 19 and 20, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that God tells Moses, there's a place near here where you can stand on a rock, and I will pass by, and I'm going to put you in a cleft in the rock, and cover you with my hands so that you won't get too much of a view until I'm on my way past you and then you can glimpse at the backside of me, but no one can see my face and live. So that's what I'm going to do. And that's all the glory that you can stand. Most of you are familiar with that story. I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing that story taught in Sunday school and preached from pulpits as the whole story. And that's where this segment of narrative in Exodus comes. That chapter closes, the next chapter begins a new narrative. But this is not the end of the story. In other words, what I'm saying is when, when Moses said, Lord, Show me your glory. And God said, okay, I'll show you my glory. It doesn't stop with chapter 33. And I think the reason we have a disconnect in the, in the story in our minds is, first of all, we have a chapter division. And chapter, the chapter divisions are not divinely inspired. They were added to help us reference our way around to find places in Scripture. And so there's a chapter division here, and in our minds, when a chapter and a book changes, we move on to something new. And also, in the first verses of chapter 34, God tells Moses, I want you to get two new stones, and I want you to come back up on the mountain, and I'm going to give you the law all over again, so that the people can have my law that was previously smashed when you came down off the mountain. So we enter into that narrative and we lose track of the fact of what just happened at the end of chapter 33. But as we get into chapter 34 and we come to verse 5, we pick up the narrative of what had been happening in 33. And in Exodus 34, 5, it says... Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. 
Now, did you notice a while ago, we won't go back there on the slides, but on the slide that showed you verse 19, God said, I'm going to declare my name to you. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And I had that underlined. And the reason that that was underlined, because God says the same thing here. That's how we know this is a continuation of the same story. And so the, the Lord said, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And then in verse 6, he says, And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So in this verse and a half, we have the key that unlocks the mystery of Moses' request at the end of chapter 33. Because when Moses said, show me your glory, he was talking about the external, physical, observable to human eyes appearance of God. And who among us would not like to see what God looks like? But in God's response, God is going to tell Moses that his priorities are out of balance. You see, what matters most about God is not what he looks like to the human eye. What matters about God is who he is. And in chapter 34, as it picks up the conversation between God and Moses, God starts to lay out a description, a definition of himself that he wants Moses to understand and appreciate to grasp the awesomeness of our God. And so he he had said twice, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And that's how his description starts. The Lord, the Lord. He is saying this about himself. It's like me talking to you. You want to know me? Let me tell you about me. It's Mark, Mark. Now that tells you a whole lot right there, doesn't it? About me. But in God's case, it's very informative. In our English Bibles, we have continued a, trans, a, a tradition of the ancient Hebrews to not say the name, the proper name of God. The Jews would not say God's name for fear of taking it in vain. And you remember back in Exodus at the very beginning when God first revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses said, who are you? And God said, I am. And that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And in our English Bibles, any time in the Old Testament, that you see uh, uh, the word LORD in all caps, that is letting you know that that's where the name Yahweh appeared 
in the ancient scripture. So here, as the Lord is revealing himself to Moses, he isn't saying, my name is Lord, Lord. He's saying, my name is Yahweh. I am. And that phrase is a little bit mysterious to us, but what we understand from that is God is describing himself in terms of eternity. He has always been, and he will always be. And he is all that there is, and he needs nothing from anyone. He is self-sustaining, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing. Whatever you would wonder about him, he is all those things. I am. In fact, the word can also be translated, I am that I am. And so here, as God starts his description of himself, he wants to remind Moses of just exactly who this is that Moses is talking to. The great I am is the one that you were talking with, Moses. The one who needs nothing, the one who is unchanging, the one who is all-sufficient and all-powerful, that's who is talking to you. Now let me tell you a little bit more about me. And that's where we pick up on my new word, Kogsalov. It's actually an acronym, if you will, and the C stands for the first word in God's definition of himself, compassionate. God says that he is compassionate, that he genuinely cares for us and holds us with a tender attitude of concern and mercy. In Psalm 103, verses 4 and 13, it says, God redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God is a God of compassion and care and concern, and he cares for you. In all that you do, all that you encounter, all the difficult times that you walk through, all the struggles and questions and doubts that you have, whatever you're facing in life, God cares for you. The word here, compassion in the Hebrew, is actually taken from the word womb. And the idea is, as, as a mother cares for her child, so God cares for us because we, in fact, are his children. So the first thing God says about himself is that he's compassionate, and the second thing he says about himself is that he is gracious. God is gracious. He does things for us that we don't deserve, and he goes far beyond anything that we could ever expect or deserve. He grants us truly kind favor of which we are not worthy. 
Psalm 103 again, and this time in verse 10 says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. God is a God of grace and a God of favor. When Jacob had stolen his brother's birthright and then spent 20 years hiding from him in another land, when he returned and hoped that he could reconcile with his brother Esau, as they approached each other, the very first thing that Jacob says to Esau is, may I find favor in your sight. It's the same word, the same word that God is using to describe himself here as gracious. And that's how he feels toward us. God is compassionate and gracious. And then the third phrase that he uses about himself is he's slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now doesn't that go against so much of the stereotypical picture that our culture has of God? You get out of line, a lightning bolt is going to zap you and leave a greasy spot on the ground. God says, no, that's not it at all. That is not me. <laughs> Scripture tells us repeatedly about the patience and the long-suffering and the forbearing spirit that God has with us to put up with us and all our shenanigans Nehemiah 9, 30 and 31 says, For many years you were patient with them, yet they paid no attention. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. There's a fascinating backstory to this phrase, slow to anger. In Hebrew, their word... For anger is hot nose. And so, for example, in the story of Joseph, when Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of inappropriate advances, Scripture says in our English, Potiphar was angry. In the Hebrew, it says Potiphar's nose was hot. The picture behind that is for many folks, when we get angry, the blood rushes to our face and our face turns red. And particularly a person's nose may even start to get a little more pink or red. That's the picture there behind the word anger in Scripture. So the opposite of that in the Hebrew is long nose. For example, Proverbs 1931, I'm sorry, 1911 in English, it says, a man's wisdom yields patience. 
But the Hebrew actually says a man's wisdom is his long nose. Now, this is not talking about Jimmy Durante. And if you know that reference, you're, you're showing your age. It's not talking about the physical length of the nose. What it's saying is the person who is patient, the person who is wise, takes a long time to get angry. It takes a long time for their nose to turn red. God describes himself to Moses as being long-nosed. That's literally the Hebrew here. When we translate, he's slow to anger. In Hebrew, it says God is long-nosed. Now, God is using human terms. He's not saying he literally has a long nose. But he is saying that he is patient with us, even when we don't deserve it. And 2 Peter 3.9 says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the greatest patience of all, isn't it? That God desires our repentance. God desires that the broken relationship between us and Him because of our sin, He desires to repair and restore that broken relationship. And He is patient with us in the process. Whatever it takes, however long it takes, He is waiting for us to turn to Him. Cog, saw, is how far we are through our word. Compassionate, gracious, S-A, slow to anger. And now we come to the loft part. Love is our next word. This term is a term for long-term, reliable, covenant love. It's a commitment that God has made to his people. It's a commitment that God made to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And through Jesus Christ, it's a commitment that he has made to us, his people, today. It's not a love that vacillates and turns hot and cold depending upon the events of the day or the mood of the moment. It is a love that is committed, steadfast, dependable. You know God's love is never going to change for us. Psalm 86.5 says, you are, a forgi forgiving and, you are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call on you. And Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Has there ever been a greater expression, a greater demonstration, a greater proof of God's love than the price that Christ paid for us and our salvation. Our next word is faithfulness. Faithfulness. 
no matter how fickle and unreliable we may be towards God, he can be counted on in every situation and at all times to be completely faithful to us. Now, if you're looking at your Bible in your pew, your translation may say truth. About half the translations say faithful and about half the translations say truth. And that sounds to us like two different things, but in the Hebrew mind, it's not. Here's where the two words connect. If you are true, you are trustworthy. If what I tell you about your question is true then you know you can trust the answer that I have given you. If my actions and behavior are true, then you know that you can depend upon me to do what I told you I would do. I am trustworthy. The word faithful is a synonym of trustworthy, isn't it? If I am trustworthy to do what I said I would do, you could also just as easily say that I am faithful to do what I said that I would do. So whichever word you want to use, the idea behind it is the same. God is faithful. God is true. God is trustworthy. What he says, you can take to the bank. What he says, you can know, you can stake your life on it. That he will do what he said he will do. He will keep his promises regardless of the circumstances. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then the last word that God uses to describe himself to Moses is forgiving. He says that he maintains love to thousands and that is thousands, generations. In chapter 20, he used the exact same phrase to say generations. He maintains love to thousands of generations and is forgiving of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And this we need so much. If God is true, if God is faithful, if God is loving, if God is compassionate, if God is slow to anger, if God is going to give us grace and favor then he will forgive us when we fail him, when we reject him, when we turn our backs on him, when we seek after ourself and our self-interests instead of seeking to follow him and to honor him with our lives. He has promised to forgive. Back once again to Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your sins and redeems your life from the pit. Jesus himself demonstrated this 
in the most extreme way in Luke 22, 34, as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Even at the moment of the greatest offense conceivable in the history of mankind, man's rejection of God's love and grace, man's putting God's Son to death on the cross, Jesus said, forgive them. So Kogsalov, that is God's description of himself. What he wanted Moses to know about himself, that he was compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, He's full of love and faithfulness, and boy, is he forgiving. That's what Moses needed to know about God, not how shiny and bright and pretty he was to look at. But what was he really like in himself, in his character, in his nature, and in his relationship with man? Now, simply because this next phrase is there and it might confuse somebody, I want to address it. The next phrase says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And a lot of people see that after this marvelous description of God They see this and they go, whoa, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't like that. That doesn't sound all warm and fuzzy like the other stuff did. God's going to punish the children and the grandchildren for the sins of the parents? That's not what it's saying. Elsewhere in Scripture, Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, other places, it very clearly says... The person who sins is the person who gets punished. And it also says the child will not be punished for the sins of the parent, and the parent will not be punished for the sins of the child. So what in the world does this mean? This is saying that children will repeat the sins they saw in their parents. And grandchildren will repeat the sins that they see in the lives of their parents and and grandparents. And as the children repeat those sins and as the grandchildren repeat those sins, they will answer for their sin generation to generation because despite the fact that God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loving, faithful, and forgiving, despite all that, he's also just. And the person who sins must answer for their sin. If God was not just, if God did not hold us accountable for our sin, then he would not be truly loving. He would be capricious. 
So, Kogsalaf, isn't that a great word? And to think that I came up with that all by myself. Look in verse 8. Verse 8 tells us Moses' response after this tremendous revelation of God of himself. Moses' response was that he bowed down and worshiped. He bowed down and worshiped. You know what that means? It means that Moses got it. Moses started out wanting a snapshot. Moses started out wanting to see the pretty picture of God. Instead, God gave him a three-dimensional holographic image in his heart of who God really is. And Moses understood And there could be no other response but to fall down on his face and worship. Because our God is worthy of our worship. So, it leads to the question, do you know God as compassionate, as gracious? Do you know God as slow to anger, as loving, as faithful and forgiving? Do you know God in your mind, but even more importantly, in your heart in these ways? That's his desire, just as he wanted Moses to know it, he wants you to know it. He wants you to grasp it. He wants you to respond to it. He wants you to respond in worship, but he also wants you to respond with a life lived after him. Seeking him, honoring him, following him, serving him. So, through your relationship with God, are you becoming, are you becoming more gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, loving, faithful, and forgiving? Ephesians 5.1 says that we are to be imitators of God And if we are his children, if Jesus Christ is our Lord, and we seek to be those disciples that our mission statement says we seek to be, then the things that describe him should little by little, day by day, increasingly, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, come to describe us as well. (coughs) 
we'll never be as gracious, we'll never be as compassionate, we'll never be as loving, we'll never be any of those things as much as God. He is perfect. But he has called us as his people to follow his example and seek to live our lives in ways that would honor and please him. So the question of the morning is, are you Kogsalov? Nathan, has everybody ever looked at you and said, you Kogsalov, you? <laughs> you know, it would be an incredible compliment if they did. And if anybody ever walks up to you and says, you look awfully cogsaloff to me, I want you to thank them. It is high praise. That's the call that God puts on us because as his people, that's who he is, the one that we follow. Let's pray. Father, this revelation that you gave to Moses so long ago is still powerful today. And I pray that for each of us, we would take these things to heart. We would meditate on them in your word. And that we would seek the work of your spirit in us to make us Kogsalov. Lord, we worship you. We praise you. We adore you because you are perfectly compassionate, perfectly gracious perfectly slow to anger, perfectly loving, perfectly faithful, perfectly forgiving. And Lord, we fall so short of that. But help us through your spirit living in us and working in us, help us to grow into your image as your people day by day. Lord, speak to our hearts in this moment. Show us where we need to seek you in applying these things and show us how through your strength that we can do that. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.